You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Welcome back, members of the jury, to the first episode of season two. We are back with more trial breakdowns and victories, as well as hot policy issues that need to be implemented for a better criminal justice system. Now, as for me, I spent the last couple of months transitioning to a full-time felony attorney, learning the ins and outs of felony sentencing and having a busier calendar with motions and prelims. I've also joined as a member of my union's DEI subcommittee and have actually been accepted into a local leadership program. And so I definitely have been busy and learning new information as to how to be a better lawyer and ways to make our system as a whole better. And uh, I'm excited that throughout this season to be able to share what I learned with you, the members of the jury. Now, as for life and, and real life practical situations, I know that there have been a couple different variants to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I remain optimistic that normalization will soon return, and I'm very hopeful that it will be at some time in 2022, because constitutional rights have been and are still being disrespected and set aside, and I understand that there's a, there's a bigger issue to be concerned with, but... Uh, there are so many people that have been year two and even three years at this point now, uh, depending on when their case started, that just have not been able to go to trial. And it's been real unfortunate. What is fortunate, though, is that the public defender family stretches throughout not only our great state here in California, but the United States. And despite all of the hardships that have been incurred, uh, on the justice system, we have warriors who are fighting every day to prevail and to ensure that our clients get as much justice as possible. And our guest today has done just that. Joining us today is Deputy Public Defender Samantha, who is still relatively new to the trenches, but has hit the battleground with force. In just her first three months, she has completed three jury trials and has seen fantastic results. Today, we get to hear about one of those victories. Samantha, thanks so much for being here. And can you give us a quick insight as to why this matter had to go to the box? Yes. Hi. So this matter actually went to the box after we lost a 1538. My client had no criminal history whatsoever. And the way the police described the incident in the police reports essentially was not how my client described it. So I think a lot of it also had to do with like just moral of this moral of the um, incident. And my client just really wanting to push forward because he was kind of just pissed off how the police treated him and, and lied in the police report. I know when you get a case right from the get-go there's that's definitely an easy way to know what path the case is going to go when when after your client hears about kind of the allegations and the facts and they have an understanding that they just disagree and and want to move forward so why don't you break us back 
from the very beginning, give us a quick insight as to what the client was charged with and what were some of the facts that the prosecutors were alleging to have the basis for the charges? Yeah. So he was charged with so the codes, vehicle code 23152F, which is with drugs. Um, the allegations were that essentially my client was driving down the street on a dark street. Cop um, was arresting a non-related subject on a domestic violence matter. Walking that person across the street, my client came driving um, and ultimately hit the cop, hit him in his hand, broke his hand. Cop freaked out, pulled him over, pulled him out of the car um, and the passenger and pretty much went from there. Performed failed sobriety tests. The officer basically said that he failed all the field sobriety tests, but we had all of it on body cam, which was really great. Wow. So you had basically allegations that because he had collided with an officer, more or less, that that was the bad driving, so to speak, that's needed for an under the influence charge. But despite that allegations, there was nothing else that the individual was charged with besides driving under the influence, there was nothing involving any assault or batteries on the officer. Ironically not. Um, and we, of course, had to counsel our client, you know, that it could always be a risk Keep fight if we kept fighting it, that they could amend the, the complaint and add that. But my client really wanted to try it for the sole purpose is he did not hit the officer. The officer got so mad. My client essentially pulled up towards the area, didn't see the cop. It was dark. Um, and then heard the cop punch my client's car. So he believed that the cop got so angry that he punched the car as opposed to the allegations, which are he hit him with it. Well, that's super interesting because, yeah, it definitely sounds like, at least at this point, from your point of view, you're, you have a cop's point of view versus a client's point of view. And as you like to say, that's a he said versus he said kind of story. So I'm interested to really get down into the actual trial component of this amazing matter. And as we know, one of the first things that we experience as trial attorneys when going to trial is motions in limine, and those are pre-trial motions. Was there anything in particular about this case or the set of facts or the evidence that were being alleged that had to be fought over during these motions? So I'd say the biggest motion in limb I had was to obviously keep out the broken hand because my argument was what is the relevance of it? Um, if it, also it doesn't have a foundation, they didn't have medical records. They didn't have a doctor that could come in and actually establish that the officer's hand was broken. So I thought it was really just prejudicial to my client to throw that information in. So that was my biggest in motion in limine, which ultimately did get granted. But in the trial, the fact that the officer's hand was broken came out anyways, and the judge kind of just let it fly. So at the end of the ruling, though, the judges had ordered that the result or the allegation, because there was an ability to establish it, the hand was broken. That information was not supposed to come in. It, yes. I mean, the problem was, is the ruling was if they could establish foundation, um, which I didn't think at any point they could. And, you know, realistically, they 
the, the prosecution didn't establish foundation the way it came in, which is, in my opinion, really messed up. Um, the cop testified that it got broken um, when I objected to hearsay because he clearly hears that through the medical or the physician that he saw. They laid foundation by asking him if he's ever broken a bone on his body before. And he said, yes, he has twice before. And so that x-ray looked relatively similar to the x-ray he saw on the day he went to the urgent care. Yeah, that's silly. (laughs) It was I was unbelievable. I was very, very upset. I thought for sure that was like a nail in my client's coffin because I mean, just having injury to an officer alone is just a bad fact. But I guess going back to the original motion in Lemonade, like that didn't even get brought up at all, even by them as like an offer of proof that they would be able to like lay that type of foundation. Nothing. Nope, not at all. Um, and and at the way they first tried to frame the question, my objection got sustained. They were they did struggle to try to get it in. But ultimately, somehow or another, the the judge said, you know, if he if he's seen a broken x-ray before with a broken bone, then then he can say what he opines to it. He opined that he thought it was a fracture. Interesting. Well, let me again take another step back and just get get your thinking on something. So you've gotten the case, you and your client have elected to go all the way to trial. Uh, at this point, you have just completed motions in limine. And from what you think, you have a favorable ruling that the information with regard to the broken hand is not going to come in. At this point in time, right before the opening statements begin, what would you say would you think the biggest challenge you saw in the case being? That's a good question. Um, Well, first, this was my first jury trial. So I think really the first challenge I had to get over was doing this for the first time ever. That was the first challenge because the prosecutor had done many trials before. Once I got over my own nerves, I would say the, the biggest challenge I had is that everyone told me I was crazy taking it to trial because it's a it's a DUI and they're very hard to win. And so I thought for sure my biggest challenge was getting past the scientific evidence that comes behind a DUI. When I had no training on that whatsoever, I was really going to learn about it through the direct examination of the prosecution's lead witness. And that worried me. That's definitely... Uh... The part to be interested about is with the science and the machines, you know, and that definitely is always part of the difficult conversations that you have with clients charged with driving under the influence is that oftentimes it's it's you versus a machine. And, and unless you can find some kind of technicality or glitch or error in the machine, then it's really over. It's very tough to overcome that battle. So we'll we would definitely be interested in, in listening close when you we hear about how that examination with the expert went. So let's get into the actual trial. You know, the trial is starting. We have all of our jurors. We have all of our rulings. Give us a quick little insight as to how the prosecution presented the case in their opening statement before the members of the jury and what that what thoughts that left you with. Yeah. So, the, I mean, they they were smart about not bringing up the the hand because they didn't think that they could establish that. None of us did. So they didn't bring it up. But essentially, they kind of went off of exactly what the police report said was that my client was high as hell driving down the street, nearly runs into an officer 
and, and there's marijuana that comes out of the car and they smell marijuana. Um, and he essentially fails every single field sobriety test. So they, they presented it as they could present all this evidence to the members of the jury and really prove up their case based on the body worn camera and all the failed sobriety tests, which luckily we had. I honestly was very excited about this trial because I and maybe that's just a defense attorney in me sometimes see the facts differently. I can be looking at a video the same way the prosecutor does and just genuinely see it differently than them. Um, so I got excited because I, I thought that my, my view of the body warns and the field sobriety tests were completely different than what they did. I thought that I was able to establish that better. So I was excited and didn't really think that if they were hanging their hat on that, then I was going to tell the jury to watch that video a hundred thousand times over because I wasn't scared of it. Well, did you do just that when you had an opportunity to deliver your opening statement? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was probably the greatest (laughs) part is going, I mean, I even actually in my opening um, did the field sobriety test and told the members of the jury exactly what they were going to see step-by-step, you know, finger to nose, the whole nine steps forward, nine steps back. I did it all. And in in this case, you were arguing that they were, the results of the field sobriety test were in your client's favor. Yeah. um, Yeah. That. And also I I had some good content about the officers being very disrespectful to my client. And you can tell that they felt because my client was calling him dude. And I think it was his first interaction with police. He's like, dude, look, I'm sorry. And the cops just, you know, screaming at him, don't effing call me, dude, you call me, sir. And, you know, and I, I was excited about that. I was really excited to bring that and see how the jury reacted to him being an asshole. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely have seen and and get a visual on the body-worn type of imagery that you're talking about. Okay, just answer me this question then, because I think I have a basic understanding of of the uh, at least agreeable facts of the case is that client was driving kind of down a dark street and more or less out of nowhere, an officer popped out <laughs> in the middle of the street. It's debatable as to how and and why the officer maybe had contact with the car. But and then he was investigated for a DUI. I guess the my biggest question after hearing those facts is going would be after I guess this alleged contact with the car, what ultimately made client come to a stop and then they have this now police encounter. So it's really interesting. The cop was actually pretty far away. We weren't able to establish the actual distance, but based on the Google map that the prosecution brought in, we were able to establish it was at least four or five houses from the street where my client turned. So the cop actually was walking across the street and saw not my client turn down the street. He starts flashing his flashlight in in my client's eyes, basically through the windshield. And so my client doesn't know what the hell is going on. So he starts to slow up. And then finally, the officer screams at him, punches the car um, windshield, and then he puts it in park. I think he actually struggled to put it in park because he was so afraid the officer came out at him basically in the pat in the driver's seat with his gun out, just screaming bloody murder, telling him to get out of the car. So when he did come to a stop though, was it relatively close to where the alleged like contact had happened? Yeah, not too long afterwards. It was it was probably seconds after that. He basically stopped right then and there, put his car in park and and it all started from there. And, and the police just basically walked to him. They didn't have to like get in their cars and like travel any kind of. No, nope. 
No. What it sounded like, in in my opinion, based on how that was coming out, was that my client was, you know, the cop was able to see my client physically drive down the street and was actually slow up and almost put himself at risk to get hit, you know, instead of just getting the F out of the way and waiting for my client to drive down the street. Understood. Okay. Okay. So... Uh, as a as a gerb, essentially just giving that presentation of the openings, I, I get understand uh, basically the, what each side is, is arguing. Mm-hmm. So then, take us to the prosecution's case in chief. Who's one of the first witness or, or one of the first witnesses that they called? Um, you know, did they call that many in this case? Uh, give us a rundown of that. So they called two in total. They actually only called the arresting officer. He didn't really bring much backup, so they didn't have a reason to call the backup. Um, and he did all the field sobriety tests, so he was able to establish everything. And then the second one was their criminalist. Okay, their DUI expert. Yes. Okay, so I'm presuming then then during their case in chief, officer took the stand and said a lot of what you've kind of given us the background of was I was just I guess did they they did he mention why he was there and to begin with and what he was even doing in the middle of the street prior to the client interaction? Yeah, so he was arresting somebody on what we call PC two forty three. He was arresting somebody at a at a house right on the on the street um, for a battery, an unrelated charge. So he put that person in handcuffs and was walking that he called prisoner across the street to his vehicle, which was parked, you know, adjacent from the house that he was at. Oh, so did this alleged contact happen while said guy was also in his like? being arrested (laughs) cop had to quote unquote take the prisoner and push him across the street so that prisoner lands on the grass in order to save him from getting hit by client no way so like do you (laughs) so like is that the end of it is that the third guy does he ever come back does anyone else go and talk to him do the police ask him like no you know no I, I contemplated trying to find him. I did, but I thought it would muddy the waters a little bit and didn't quite think it was necessary. Plus, I didn't want it to lead to a conflict within my firm if we currently represent him on a 243. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm surprised the I'm surprised the officer didn't be like, sir, can you be a witness and make a statement that we almost got hit by this car or, some, yeah. or something? That's hilarious. Yeah, wow. he, he acted like a, like, a, like a hero cop for it, too. Uh, so he laid the factual picture background that that happened, um, and then the criminalist came. And uh, tell us about that. I mean, that's that's what you had said was some of your was one basically your biggest concern coming into the case. You know, we know obviously the prosecution is calling them so that they're gonna they're gonna say something favorable to the prosecution. So give us a breakdown, I guess, of what they said, what you were able to learn from their direct examination, and. You know, and then we'll we'll see how you ultimately utilized it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it sounded great for the prosecution. They were essentially able to get out, you know, field sobriety tests and what the police said and how the criminalist uses that to determine whether someone's under the influence, you know, opined that 
the levels were fairly high and indicative of someone recently smoking, likely right around the time they were trying to dance around the fact that they thought client was smoking a weed pen at the time he basically hit the officer. Um, so the, they, they, she tried to uh, walk around that and basically say that he smoked right around there and establish everything the prosecution wanted. And yeah, I mean, going into listening to the direct was just as worrisome as I had expected it. She's, she was very well trained. She has been a criminalist with them for about 20 years. She is well versed in, in all things DUI. What were some of the, so we know that she was going to say based on her results, she concluded that he was under the influence. What were some of the reasonings and, uh, and science I think she relied on, especially as it co- was your non-traditional alcohol DUI and it was specifically a marijuana DUI? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that they weren't able to establish is that there is a science behind it. They try to, and if you do enough research on marijuana and DUIs, which I have just, I just really interested in, um, there's a whole article, a NHTSA article that basically talks about how there is no science to it. So they weren't really able to establish that. It, it essentially sounds like she runs his blood, sees a certain number, and then goes off of what the police report says and says the field sobriety tests are failed and puts those two together. And that's really the only way she was able to bridge that connection. Interesting. Was she able or did she mention any literature that suggested to any kind of like bright line uh, level of intoxication as it related to marijuana? You know, I know specifically as it relates to like DUI cases, even though the law is 008 there's this there's this article that DUI experts like to cite to that says technically uh, influence can or impairment can start at 0.05 and they always use that as the basis uh, into their opinion. Did she have any literature or scientific studies that she was that they try to rely on to say even though there isn't a an established law that sets a limit? Based on peer studies and review, we think it's X or Y. You know, no, um, I'll give her credit for that. I think she she utilized the same literature that I did when I was, you know, once we got to cross examination, I actually spoke with her the day of the trial. I called her on the phone right before she showed up at the courthouse because I wanted to see what she was going to testify to. Um, and she basically testified kind of how I thought after I did the research, she, she conceded that there wasn't a bright line rule that she, as an expert could never opine to that until there's actually literature. She did say that, you know, there is literature through the, um, NHTSA organization and HTSA national highway traffic safety, um, people that there is a 0.05 nanograms per milliliter is essentially, recent smoking, but then you have different levels and you have like deltas and hydroxies and delta nines, which are like past smoking, um, some being metabolized hours later, some metabolizing right away. And so it's, it's so hard to determine, especially when you have people that have higher levels or who smoke all the time. So their high delta nine level would be higher than their hydroxy. So she, I will say she essentially does concede that there's not a bright line rule to it the way a 0.08 BAC would in alcohol. Well, that's definitely favorable. That was That's nice because, yeah, you have your experts who get up there and really try to stretch it um, to say 
those things. Um, well, let's let's shift gears then. Okay, so that was their direct examinations. The counter to that, obviously, is the cross examinations. And so let's take that takes us into your point of view. I want to go back to the officer. Um, what were some of the points that you were trying to contest with his version of, um, and to kind of highlight essentially your client's version by way of your questions and cross-examination? So I I first definitely wanted to uh, just skim over the broken hand. I didn't want to ask too many questions about it, but I wanted to establish he's not a doctor. He has no training. We don't have medical reports. So I wanted to establish that. I didn't cross him too long. The biggest things I wanted to establish is we went we uh, reviewed the body-worn camera together. And so I had him tell the members of the jury right there, no, there's only eight steps. I had the members of the jury watch the video again. We counted nine steps. So I, I wanted him to admit everything he was lying about right in front of them, which he did. I also got him to admit that, yeah, he was straight up an asshole. He was frustrated. He felt disrespected. And I made sure that I had him admit that because you could see that he was so angry with my client for almost hitting him or hitting him and and that he, he took it very personal through the rest of his contact with him. So I wanted to make sure that he admitted that and that that came out. And I just wanted to play the video as many times as I could in front of the jury while I had him on the stand and just have him stare at it and feel like the asshole that he really was. Well, that leads me to two questions. One, really interestingly, at any time on the body-worn camera while he's, like, doing his DUI investigation and these field sobriety tests, is he, like, complaining about his hand? Is he, like, using his hand? So that was the great thing, actually, is he searched my client's car directly after all this happened and he's making him do all this. He forces my client on the curb and, you know, tells him I'm going to search the car. Doesn't matter what my client's rights are, whether or not he could, but he does. And so that was a question I asked him is, you know, because it's on his body worn camera and he's throwing things around with both hands. And so, no, not once was he complaining about this hand, not once on the 45 minute long body worn camera. Did he bring it up? (laughs) And I even said, you know, here we are, he's grabbing with both hands. And he, you know, he said, well, how else was I supposed to hold my flashlight? (laughs) You know, so he did make some statements like that, that I think were just incredible to the jury. Oh, good, good, good. But no, he didn't. He, he totally did not complain once. Okay. And then that leads me to two, cause yeah, I really like, love like sometimes the body cam footage is just so good for us, you know, um, especially in these in these kind of scenarios where the conclusions that he wrote in his report, like just blatant contradictions to the results of the field sobriety test that you would then see on the body worn camera, or were they like more so like exaggerations, right? Cause I know sometimes they tend to exaggerate, but then I've seen situations yeah. where like it's, it's a blatant contradiction. I mean, I had a case where the individual, the, the officer wrote in his report that during one of the, the one-legged stand that my client had put his arms out to the side of him. And he said like, like an airplane. And when you watch the body one camera, my, my client at most like shrugs his shoulders. So like 100% just blatant. And so what kind of degree are we talking here in this case? Uh, you know, more of an exaggeration. I think enough exaggerations equal look like a bigger lie though. You know, after you say eight steps and it was nine steps and and really on a test like that, you need a nine steps, right? It's nine steps forward, nine steps back. So when you say it's eight and eight, although they're small minutia things, 
when they're actually, that, that makes someone fail a field sobriety test when the body worn shows nine steps. So they were more exaggerations. I would say, like he says, my client's eyes were bloodshot and watery and his body worn happened to be like right in my client's face and his eyes are clear and glassy as day, you know? So it's, he was more of an ex- exaggerated thing. I, I, I think. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, and that's and I, I totally get to your point. I mean, especially if it's if it one exaggeration, okay, but if it's like throughout the whole thing, then then yeah, that's where reasonable doubt slowly creeps in. Level of credibility tends to take uh you know take place and, yeah. and be evaluated. So that that's really good. You know that that's that's why we're there, and and sounds like that was able to be established. So that's awesome. What about with regards to the expert in the case? Um, you know, especially again, that was something you were nervous about. You had just kind of, I'm assuming, absorbed uh, a lot of information that you may or may not have known on direct. So, how were you able to recover during the cross examination? So, I will say, I think sometimes I also get the best of myself. I was nervous going into it. So in the beginning, I think I, I was nervous in my cross of her, but it was interesting. We actually, I, I got a little bit through and then we had to take a lunch break. And I think I'm happy that we did because there came point in time where I got really worked up and I thought I, you could kind of see it in front of the jury because I was, we were going through this national highway safety, which is known to the experts when it comes to specifically marijuana DUIs. They've done all the research, put everything together in a research report. Essentially it's a 60 or a 40 page, 30 page, 40 page article that in summation says we don't have enough information to tell us what the FSTs are in correlation to being under the influence of marijuana and driving. That's really what it says. And so I'm cross-examining her on it and, and speaking about certain points. And she's blatantly telling me that's not true. And then pulls out the article that I'm talking about. She has a giant stack of full, a folder with her. And she goes, well, you know what? I have the article here. And she takes out. So I'm quoting her. Okay, let's go to page 28, quoting her. And she's acting like it doesn't exist. She's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, but let's go to page 26. And so she's like battling me on things that are in an article that she, she relied on. And I think in another thing that was interesting was, you know, I would ask her, like a simple question, like there are no medically, um, medical standards or expert standards where you can actually opine that there's a correlation between field sobriety tests and being under the influence of marijuana. And she goes, I'm not sure what you mean by like a scientific based method. And I'm like, you're an expert and you don't know what a scientific based method is. And then she would answer my question about a different scientific based method. Right. So it was kind of like a battle and she got the best of me. At least that's what I, I, I thought. Cause I, I definitely went back to my office, worked up <laughs> at least once or twice. She, she, she got me and she's known this specific expert in my County is known for that. Well, yeah, that's is, again, tough. That's a tough examination. I think whether it's your first, fifth, 10th trial, you know, that the expert is always going to be the smarter person in that exchange. And, you know, going back to law school, I think, you know, that's, that's stuff that they'll teach you. And, and, you know, you need to know enough to get the plane, be on the same playing field as them. But, you know, it's always, if it's, 
if your goal is to try to outsmart them, it's definitely going to be a tough go round. But sometimes playing dumb, I think in this situation, some helped me a little bit more, right? I mean, sometimes being naive and ignorant to it and asking the, her dumb questions, you could see kind of pissed her off more because I thought I was talking, knew what I was talking about. So that actually kind of played in, in my favor a little bit is, is acting stupid for her. Oh, nice. Yeah. And again, you know, the goal is, is I'm assuming some of the information she has to say is supposed to be obviously neutral and just as a matter of science, which whether you like it or not is going to potentially fall in favor of us, especially in this situation, because as you were saying, like a lot of that stuff that she's referring to wasn't necessarily designed to determine the presence of like marijuana. So it's really important when then she tries to take uh, the stand and almost testify as if it was. So that's super interesting. So that was it. The the prosecution called those two witnesses, pretty much submitted the BWC. Anything else that really happened during their case in chief? No, you know, to be honest, it was pretty cut and dry. I mean, even the facts were pretty easy. We didn't really dispute much of the facts. I didn't even really dispute that the cop broke his hand once that came into evidence. It was just how the biggest thing, and I, and I knew that throughout the beginning of the case was going to be me making my argument to the jury. My closing was going to be everything because I knew that that was where I could just speak exactly what my story is. Other than that, we didn't really dispute much of the evidence. Um, so it was just trying to get the jury to see how see it, how I saw it. So the prosecution has rested. You will tell us, do you put on any kind of case in chief in, in this matter? Do you call your own expert? What, what, uh, what happens uh, when the defense is asked? Are they going to present any evidence? I, so I didn't. Um, I actually was out of the office the day uh, my office ran the 1538 motion, the motion to suppress, and we lost. And that attorney who lost the motion said, your best bet is to getting an expert on your case. So I went back and forth, back and forth, um, and ultimately just said, I think less is more. Um, Instead of bringing someone in to dispute them, just fight it. So I didn't. I went back and forth with having my client testify, but I didn't. I went back and forth with having his passenger testify because there was actually a passenger in the car the whole time who watched everything, but I didn't. I didn't call anybody. I didn't present any evidence. Um, and this was really a case where I think mostly to just poke holes in the prosecution's story was the way to win. So once you decide you have basically all the evidence that you'll be working with to prepare your closing argument, and obviously the prosecution is doing that as well, would you say, what would you say was the most surprising thing that maybe happened at trial that caught you by obviously surprise if it's surprising, <laughs> but you know, that was maybe came out differently than you, than it was not in the police report or that you just weren't really expecting that then was now going to be a featured part of your closing. I had prepped and thought for sure the broken hand wouldn't come in and it did. And so that was the biggest thing that I had to worry about that the prosecution was really going to hit home on and that I had to try to combat by essentially making it the officer's fault. Whether or not my client hit him, I still tried to make it the officer's fault. So that was, uh, other than that, that was the most surprising fact that came in just because we had inlimbed it. But it was all pretty relatively not shocking that it actually came out exactly as the evidence 
how I thought it was. There was no new exhibits, no new testimony. I was able to pretty uh, well prepare. Well, one of my saying as it relates to the trial is that you're guaranteed to have a what the fuck moment. Sounds like in this case for you, it, it was the hand. Yeah. I'm really interested to see how you recovered from that and how the prosecution ultimately utilized it. So give us a rundown of the closing arguments. What did the prosecutor argue before the members of the jury after getting that critical piece of information out? How did that change from what she had mentioned in her opening? You know what? I hate to do this, but I have to go back because there was a vital moment in the trial that I totally forgot. (laughs) Indirect examination. So of the officer. Um, So I was arguing essentially that the officer blinded my client, right? With the flashlight as my client's driving down the street, officer standing in the middle of the road, shining his flashlight in his windshield. So I'm kind of going off the argument of the officer blinded my client and didn't know that's why client essentially maybe ran into the officer. Well, the, the, the prosecutor thought it was a good idea to have the officer who had his flashlight with him turn it on and shine it at the jury. And he blinded the entire wow. jury. And they were like, they're like the women were just like, ah, like screaming. He just blinded the entire jury. And so the reason I bring that up is I just remembered that that's that translated later on in closing arguments. But so, so the prosecution's closing argument essentially was pretty much like their opening. Um, they got to really hit home on this guy was so stoned. He had a weed pen on him. He failed the field sobriety test. They, they, the prosecution, regardless of the video playing in open court and us all watching it together, still stuck by the officer's statement, still stuck by the officer's story. And I think that's where they lost credibility too, because there comes a time, and even as defense attorneys, where you're like, I have to pick one way or the other. I have to roll with this because one makes me sound incredible, even though my client may be saying that's the story. It doesn't sound credible. So you can't go with that. And I don't think the prosecution saw that. So they they stuck to the officer's story that client was super high, that he failed the field sobriety test, and ultimately that, you know, that he had recent levels, said that he was so stoned he didn't even see him. He he broke his hand. So all of that really came out um, and they they stuck to that one story and didn't really stray away from it, even though I don't think the evidence presented that way. Wow. Okay. Well, so obviously I'm sure that that they honed in on that and argue that's definitely how, you know, there was a collision and how there was impairment. What did you say to rebut it in your closing to have an impact on the jury? So mostly I, 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 I told them, you know, I brought out, they brought out a, um, a Google maps, like an overhead of where the house was, where the officer was walking from and where my client had turned down the street when he first, when the cop first saw him. So I started off with that, just showing the jury members, like, maybe we don't know the real distance in this, but look how far from where my client turned to where the cop was. He had a significant amount of time to get the hell out of the way. So first I really blamed it on the cop. I said, the cop, you know, the cop not only put himself at risk, but put this other person who he arrested also at risk, right? You have two people almost getting hit by a car. All why? Because the officer wants to stand in the middle of it and shine his flashlight. 
And then I hit home on the flashlight. I wasn't really going to argue it too much. I did see it kind of an issue, but I wasn't going to make it a big deal until they brought it in. And so then I just reminded the members of the jury how bright that flashlight is and told them and pointed to the specific women that were really like offended by it and, and really hit home making eye contact with them. Like you remember how bright that damn light was and they're shaking their head. Like, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Yeah, we do. And then I, I, I did the field sobriety test for them in my high heels and, and showed them one by one, what they would see on the body worn. And I told them, I, I hung my hat on I, you're going to go back with this body worn camera. I want you to watch it as many times as it takes you to watch it to, to, and I pointed out the specific parts of where the officer said this happened and where it didn't. I gave them even time. Like you can pause it at 2153. And, you know, I was really smart about where I did that so that they wouldn't have to go back and rewatch it. So they pinpoint each of those spots. And I really hit home on the fact that the officer was just mad. And I conceded, yeah, my client may have almost hit him. He didn't see him. He was blinded by this bright ass light. Um, and the cop was reasonably mad. He was very personally mad because he almost got hit. And so I kind of really hung my hat on all that. I, I didn't talk too much about the broken hand aside from trying to blame the broken hand on the officer, <laughs> to be honest. Right. Well, an office and you don't want to highlight it even more. So that, I think that's a smart strategy as well. Did the prosecutor give much uh, of a rebuttal? No, I don't think there was really too much to rebut. They really thought with that broken hand that they had it in the bag. They really did. And it's, I think most of my office thought I was that crazy, you know, for taking it to trial with a broken hand. So the jury has it. it how long do they deliberate during their deliberations? Do they submit any questions? Do they ask for any playbacks? Walk us through that. Nothing, nothing. They didn't ask a single question. They went, didn't want a single read back. They had deliberated for about an hour and 35 hour and 40 minutes. They came back. Um, actually, we closed and finished on Thursday. They were ordered to come back Friday morning. They got started at deliberations around nine. Um, and I think we came back with a verdict around 1045, 10:35, 10:40. How were you feeling when you got the phone call that there was a verdict? Oh, I was so nervous. I was so nervous, especially my first one. And, and you know, it's actually funny. My client was so good. You know, he was just along for the ride, really sweet young guy. Didn't really know what a trial was until we went through it. Was very nervous at the end, had to go to work on Friday and said, he'll like stay in the location and ended up getting called out to like a farther spot. And so he actually allowed me to appear on his behalf for the verdict. So I actually did it without him, Wow, um, which was kind of like very anticlimactic. But when I turned around all, most of my office and like my supervisors and, and the entire district attorney's office was in there. So I was like, at least I ruffled some feathers, you know? What was the verdict? So my verdict was not guilty. Hey, and I got let's it, go. I got to admit. Yeah, I got to admit I this this little this older woman who sat in the front, I something about her that I just thought was going to be the four person and I really focused on her in my closing and she came out with the verdict form. And somehow I just knew because it was the the not guilty was behind the guilty sheet when it went into the envelope. And they wrote out the not guilty in just saying not guilty, whereas they wrote out the guilty in like a paragraph form, like guilty of DUI, yada, 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 yada. So when they 
when the clerk pulled out the second sheet, I saw that it was only one line and I, I kind of knew it before she said not guilty just by kind of like looking over at the clerk and seeing if I could squint enough to see what I thought I saw. Wow. 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 Congratulations. Yeah, that is why yeah, we have thank you. freedom Friday. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was go. so good. It was that so good. First jury trial ever too. It was quite an experience. Well, I can tell you just hearing it, it sounds, uh, that is unbelievable. You know, definitely have some tough facts to overcome and, you know, take it took advantage of the charging document with just the one charge. And I, I think that was definitely worth the risk, you know, yeah. part of the game that we play is sometimes, unfortunately, had there been more charges on that complaint, especially with more severity, especially, you know, felonies, yeah, you might not have this conversation. And, and the unfortunate part about that is that doesn't change the facts. That didn't change the circumstances, but it, it changed the, it changes the lens in which the case is seen. And that could have very un drastically had a different impression on the jury or on the client. So definitely congratulations. That sounds like a, what a fantastic result. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Samantha, we really appreciate you coming onto the show. Uh, what a fantastic result. We wish you the best in your journey. We hope that you have continued success in and out of the courtroom and would love to have you back on. One of the questions we always ask our guests to end the show is in, in, in a general sense, what is the, the broad meaning of taking matters to the box mean to you? It means having a voice, you know, I, I really like taking things to the box or really kind of convincing or discussing that with clients. It's a way to exercise a right that you have. There's so many times that we see officers completely violate your client's rights and they may be good for it, you know, maybe good for the gun that they have, but the way the cop got there in the beginning was wrong. And so it gives them a way to actually tell their side of the story. And a lot of times working in this field, you'll learn, as I'm sure you did, um, that that's really all they want. People just want to be heard. They want their story known. They want, when you read them the police report, they are always shocked because it's not the same way that it's written. Um, and they just want to have that right to speak their truth, whether or not they found guilty or not. You know, they, I think in the long run, just getting that out there is the most important part. And you can't, trust the police <laughs> for what they say. That's for sure. So um, I think it's of, of having a voice and being able to speak your truth. Couldn't agree more. Well, and thanks again for coming on. Well, members of the jury, that's our show. And I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at Members of the Jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. 
This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.